0: Good morning, Four Oaks. So glad you're here. We don't know each other. Paul Gilbert, Lee pastor here. Um, for, for those of you who are visiting, uh, maybe you're just moved recently here to Tallahassee or it's the beginning of a school year, you're trying to find a church home. We're just particularly glad um, that you're, you're here. We'd love to connect with you. A couple of ways we can do that. One, stop by the guest area on the way out. We have a gift we'd love to give you. Um, or if you don't want to do that, just um, fill out a little contact card, slip it in the in the offering basket on the way out um, as it comes around today. But we would just love to connect with you. We're really pumped, excited for all that God is doing here at Four Oaks in this season. Um, A couple things just to put on your radar. Again, thanks to everyone who came out to our first session of Reboot this past Wednesday night. Had about 400 folks in the house, and it was an awesome—you guys excelled in potlucking. Congratulations. It was—no one went home hungry, I don't believe— Uh, Stuff for children, kids. We had um, classes for adults. It was an awesome time. We continue for the next two weeks, August 28th. That's this Wednesday night, 6 p.m. We'd love to have you. Even if you weren't here the first time, there's still an opportunity to jump on board. You know, church, we don't get an opportunity outside of Sunday morning to gather together that many times all together. We're usually in community groups or classes. Reboot is one of those opportunities, though. We would love to to see you out for that. For all the women of the church, our studies, Bible studies kick off in earnest here in a couple of weeks. We've got stuff on Jonah, 1 Peter, Genesis. Um, for for those Moms, young moms, particularly with kids, on on Wednesday mornings we have free childcare. We even have something called the homeschool room, and I'm not sure what happens in there, but obviously some sort of homeschooling. Anyway, there's something for your for your kids. Bottom line. Maybe you work outside the home, if you are a lady. a couple opportunities for you. We have a class on Wednesday night. We also have one in early in the morning on tuesday morning six fifteen susan gilbert 's going to be leading that on the book of Jonah of course they 're going to be over at Maple Street, um, consuming huge vast amounts of, of coffee. but some for some of you women, that might be the only time in your day because of other commitments that you 're able to be a part of a study, and that might be a great opportunity for you. You can sign up for all of that at Four Oaks Co. Hey, before we take our offering, I just want to update you on one thing. Last week, we put out a clarion call, uh, a a real challenge um, for the spiritual mothers and fathers of the church to, to see themselves as people who might be willing to invest in the next generation and be a part of our children's ministry team for the coming year. And let me just say, you guys responded in spades. Uh, Some of you came out of retirement. Some of you were never at work, and you came into the workforce last week. Awesome. Congratulations. Um, you just respond overwhelmingly, church, and our children 's team is super encouraged. We have a couple of spots still open and for elementary uh, small group leader, preschool leader, a toddler, nursery helper. see Julia Steak out in the lobby today at the children 's kiosk and let me just let 's take this opportunity to thank the Lord for, for working in our midst and raising up these workers as our ushers come forward today to take our offering. For our prayer time, I thought we could really pray for our students, particularly our our college students. Um, We have um, a number of college students here who are who are either living at home or um, they're at FSU, TCC, FAMU, and um, you know we we just moved our 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 daughter in our oldest daughter into her, her apartment yesterday, and just reminded of just the incredible spiritual need and opportunity that's represented here in Tallahassee. We get to be a part of that. And so um, you may not know it, we have a college ministry here. If you're a college student, we have Sunday lunch after the second service today at the Home of the Alleys. You can pick up information in the address at the Connect um, desk on the way out today. Let's use this opportunity to really pray for our students, um, pray for um, their witness, their testimony, and their walk in this season. And so let's commit them to the Lord and these gifts to the Lord. Lord Jesus, now as we um, come to the beginning of this school year, and we have high school students, college students, middle schoolers, Lord, just think about all of our teachers, administrators, all folks who are investing themselves, and um, we just really pray for them. We pray, we commit them to you, Lord. We particularly pray for our college students this season. Pray, Lord, that this would be an amazing season of growth, of ministry opportunity for them. Thank you for for Rob Pfeiffer, his leadership of of that group. Pray for their lunch today, their connections. Lord, as we embark on this new season, Lord, we commit them to you. We pray, pray, Lord, that Four Oaks would be a witness um, to them and through them. Thank you for this opportunity you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: And set the door of the ark in its side, make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which its breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall die. but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, wife, your sons, wives, with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. You shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive, and take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them." Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him.
2: Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean. And of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem And Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray together. Lord, we're coming to a, a real familiar passage And we're really just aware, super aware this morning. We need fresh ears, fresh eyes to hear anew what your holy, inspired, inerrant word has to say to us. Lord, it's not just your word that's speaking, it's you that are speaking. And so we're asking for your mercy and grace um, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks to, to Jamie and Tara Watson for reading that passage, and if you thought that was a long scripture um, passage, Watsons, just wait till we anoint somebody else next week to read two whole chapters. It's going to be awesome. Anyway, we do continue through our study of the book of Genesis, and we're getting into that section of Genesis where there are a lot of stories, a lot of narrative, and so they are longer. It's, it's not so easy to, to chop them up. We want to keep the flow in them, but we're going to be in, obviously, uh, Genesis 6 and 7 today. You know, Susan and I, when we travel, we often play something we call the radio game. And you turn on the radio, you're bored, you hit the seek or the search button on the radio, and it comes to rest on a station. And it stays there five or ten seconds until you decide whether you like that station or not. And, and the goal is, before the, the radio station moves on to the next station, we try to name the artist and the song. You get a point for each and it becomes, shall we say, highly, highly competitive. I won't tell you who comes out on top on those matches, but you just can figure that out on your own. But anyway, drawing from all those years of doing mu- music trivia together, I know there were there were actually countless options for a title that involves some kind of water. Right? Blame it on the rain. Purple rain. Blue eyes crying in the rain for all the old school. Here comes the rain again, right? But in actuality, I opted for something else because this passage isn't primarily about water. It's not primarily about the flood per se and all the questions that we come to with it. See, there's a lot of nostalgia that surrounds this story, isn't it? How many of you growing up in VBS sang the song, God said to Noah to build him an archie archie, remember that? If you weren't subjected to that, you're all the worse for it, all right? Or the Schoolhouse Rock videos where they taught elementary school students to, to add and subtract and divide and multiply using the animals of the ark as the, as the content. You know, all those are, are well and good and fine, but fundamentally they miss the mark, right? Because this is not a nice bedtime story. There's actually something... There's actually something momentous happening here. There's something terrible that's happening here. There's something astounding that's happening here. And fundamentally, Moses gives us this story to remind us of some things we need to know about God, some things we need to know about his righteousness, things we need to know about the world that we live in, and and lastly, certainly, some things we need to know about ourselves. And so I'll give you three points today. And this is what they teach you to do in seminary. Three points that all begin with the same letter. And here we go. We're going to talk about first the, de- the decreation of a world of sin, devotion in a world of sin, and deliverance from a world of sin. Let's look at decreation first. If you go to chapter 7, verse 11, it's an interesting verse. Let's read it together. It says, In the six hundred year of Noah's life, In the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. You know, if you ask a lot of the World War II generation, those few that are still living, they undoubtedly can tell you where they were on that day, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy, the Japanese bombing Pearl Harbor. Many of you were alive the day... John F. Kennedy was assassinated. you remember what you were doing, where you were? Certainly most of us were alive on 9-11. I still remember having breakfast that morning at Tally's Grill with the other pastors. We came out, we heard the news, we rushed back to dial up on our dial up internet access of AOL.com. To I think some, we're still waiting for some of the pictures to download from that time. But you get the idea, well... That's seemingly what Noah is doing here. He's he's marking this day out as unique. This is Noah's way of saying, I remember the day. I remember the time. I remember the circumstance. I remember the very hour down to the very minute where I was, what I was doing when hell was unleashed on the earth. You see, that was a day indelibly indelibly imprinted in Noah's mind forever forever and understandably so, and passed down even to us today. This was a cataclysmic event. This was no localized flood. This was no just uh, a river runs through it, so to speak. This was the destruction of the entire earth, of all mankind. The scripture here calls it all living flesh. And what's interesting when you compare Genesis 6 to Genesis 1 Genesis 1 involved the creation of the world. We have an amazing parallel where what we have here in Genesis 6 and 7 is the de-creation of the world. Think about all the parallels here. What was happening in Genesis 1? The Spirit was hovering over the waters of the earth. It says the water was chaotic. The earth was chaos. There was no life. It was one big mass of water. And what does it say? God separated the, the water above and the water below. He made land appear. God began to bring forth life. Genesis 1 through 6 says God brought order from disorder. He brought structure from chaos. Mankind was the culmination of that creation. And we were all heading in this direction. And it's easy to see, isn't it, how this story is just creation in reverse. See, God is now reintroducing chaos to the world. He's bringing the water back together. He's covering over the land. He's not bringing forth life. He's eliminating life. In the the terms that the Bible uses for this process, we're not tiptoeing up to the line here. The Bible just hits this head on. Look at verse 13. The word is to destroy to make an end to all flesh, verse 17, to eliminate life. We talked about last time that the word to destroy literally means to wipe out, to erase from memory completely. And we have to ask, what in the world would compel God to such a dramatic cataclysmic action? Well, look in verses 11 through 13. It says that God saw, he looked down upon the earth, Interesting, same language, same word that God uses in Genesis 1 and 2 when he says that he sees his creation and calls it good. Well, now God sees his creation, meaning he evaluates it. He's he's looking into it. He's, He's seeing right through it. And what he sees is corruption and violence. Literally, the word means to be ruined or to be spoiled, to be so corrupted that we have to to do nothing but throw it out you know again mentioned that we moved our oldest daughter grace into her college apartment yesterday and it just reminded me that in 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 our college apartment we measured the lifespan of perishable food items not by days not by weeks not even by months but typically by semesters right And we would play a game and you would go into the fridge and you would see that carton of milk that was at least three months old. And and we were like, hmm, that seems like it's just inviting us to do something interesting and mischievous with it. And so we would go slide it under our roommate's bed or stick it under his pillow or, you know, just something harmless, something fun under his car seat and just wait and see how long it would take him to find it, okay, which he invariably would. Sometimes somebody would leave some perishable item in the fridge over Christmas break, and we would just do, we, we felt so sorry for him that he had left his food behind that we would package it up and mail it to him, right? Now, now see, anytime somebody received a gift like that, they would immediately, invariably, no hesitation, cast it away. Get it as far away from me as possible. That's what is being described here in the text, That is God's response to what is happening on the earth. Now, not to preach last week's sermon again this week, but if that feels harsh, if that feels unjust, if that feels unfair, if that just grates against your snowflakey and postmodern ears, if that just, oh, Pastor Paul, I could never worship a God like that. Oh my goodness, Pastor Paul, that, that... that is just a barbaric notion from a primitive culture. Surely we're much more advanced. Surely we we've moved beyond these sort of pagan conceptions of of gods. But last week, remember, we 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 looked at this closely, and Moses is very clear to tell us that God was grieved. That means that he was he was churned up from the depths of his soul there was a righteous indignation a righteous anger at what was happening to his creation and God was compelled to act because of his character because of his holiness and let me just say there's a there's a there's an important application point here for us if this this idea I think of God won't judge anyone I think it is uniquely a product of a safe, first-world, affluent, academic, squishy spirituality. Very easy for affluent Westerners, and this is where, where these concepts are always bred, these ideas that God would never judge, never condemn, we, we would never enact justice. They are uniquely a product of a culture like ours. It never does it. It never survives in places where there is systemic oppression. Never. So as when we think about the social justice issues of the day, racism, abortion, human trafficking, exploitation of women, the sexual abuse of children, the neglect of the poor, do you realize that without a wrath-filled God a justice-filled God, a righteousness-filled God, we really ultimately have no basis for addressing any of these wrongs. Ultimately, they're just a a social construct that we use to feel better about ourselves for doing something. But when we acknowledge that there is a righteous God, a holy God, a justice-seeking God, we can count on, we can know that he will rectify every single injustice. See, when we think about the African-American church 200 years ago, when we ask, why, why did the African-American church in colonial um, America and later, why did it become the center of the African-American community and experience? And, and much of that even continues to the present day, doesn't it? All through the civil rights movement up to now. Well, when you know that you are having injustice inflicted upon you and there is no one who will listen to you, no one who will do anything, you know that there is only one person to cry out to who will hear you, and that is God. If, if there is no God, if there is no justice in God, there is nothing to be crying out for. It's just all good. It'll all work out in the end, just no big deal. Because let me ask you a question. Where in your life are you feeling the decreation, so to speak? Where in your life where you earnestly desire order and purpose and clarity and beauty do you see the ravages of sin on your soul? Maybe maybe it's in a marriage or a divorce or a wayward child. Maybe you see the ravages of the decreation in your body. Maybe you see it in your relationships. Maybe you see it in your job. And the question is, who do you call out to? Who do you cry to? See, the God that Scripture gives us here is the God we cry out to because he can actually do something. It may not be when we want it done, but it will be done. Justice will be enacted. God's purpose and and righteousness will be upheld. The cause of the needy, the widow, the orphan, God says, ultimately wins because of who he is. So that's what's prompted the decreation. Now let's look at the devotion of a man named Noah. Verse 9 tells us that Noah was a righteous man. That's the first time we see that word in the Bible. We'll see it many other times, subsequent. But this is the first time that we see it. And as we know, in, in sort of in, in Hebraic language, this idea of being righteous, kind of like, you know, Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the righteous man. Not a perfect man, but a man who strove to live according to God's standards. Now, we, we can call someone righteous in the sense that there is a fundamental foundational commitment in their life to follow God. Even when they sin grievously. And, when, and, and we're going to find later when we get to, to Genesis chapter 9, Noah sins heinously. But here, this is after the fact that Moses looking back and said, no, 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 this is a righteous man. Why? Because he has a fundamental stake in the ground, which says, even when I fail, even when I mess up, Even when I don't want to repent, I'm praying that God would make me want to repent. That's called a Christian. That's called a Christian. And here it says, Noah was a righteous man. Now, what's important for us to understand as we're connecting Noah's righteousness and the grace of God that God shows Noah is that we don't get these convoluted because we can make some catastrophic spiritual mistakes. Remember what came first. If you look back, in chapter six, flip your Bible over there for a second. We find we, we talked about this last week, but in verse eight in chapter six, it tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Literally, Hebrew that means Noah was given grace by God. God's grace found Noah. Now, the reason it's important to get the order right here, it does not say that Noah was righteous and because he was righteous. God gave him his favor and grace. That's that's a world, that's every religion in the history of the world is some sort of form of that equation. But that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is God seeks out, saves, calls, chooses, regenerates, illuminates. And as that person has their eyes open and their ears open and their heart changed, their life subsequently begins to change as well. So this is the way Stephen Cole says this. I think this is really good. It would be wrong to say that Noah found favor with God because he was a righteous man. Rather, he was the object of God's undeserved favor. He lived a righteous life. That's always the order. That's always the sequence. Yet... Noah's righteousness and your righteousness, listen, church, does mean something. It's it's not irrelevant. It's not as if Paul would say this, that, that we are saved and that we sin all the more that grace may abound. That's not the attitude, the heart of a Christian. See, you can't claim salvation and to know God and then at the same time not care about walking with him. Not care about obedience. Remember what the scripture writers in the New Testament tell us. Without holiness, no one will be saved. Pastor Paul, are you saying that my holiness saves me? No, no, no. I'm just saying if you're not holy, you're not saved. I'm saying that when you're saved, your life will begin to change as a consequence. Just as it did with Noah. Does it mean perfection? Oftentimes it means grievous sin. Think about David adultery, murder, but yet God called him a man after his own heart. Why? Because he was a repentant man, because he confessed his sins, because there was a a trajectory of holiness in his life. See, when you plant a crop in the soil, it will grow. It's inevitable, and it produces fruit. But the fruit doesn't make the crop a crop. The fruit is evidence that it is a crop. And we see this same progression in the life of, Mo- of Noah. Look, look, look back at chapter 6. It says, first of all, that he was righteous. Then he was blameless. Then he walked with God. There is a progressive aspect of what Moses is describing here. Derek Hedner says this about it. In a corrupt world, Noah emerges not merely as the best of a bad generation, but as a remarkably complete man of God. And we have to ask, how? How is this possible? Let's think for a minute. Put yourself in Noah's shoes. God says, Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth a 120 years. Now listen, most of us don't have the attention span of 120 seconds, right? 120 weeks, 120 months, 120 years. And he says, I want you to, to, to get working, Noah, on this thing. And here are the instru- here's the instruction book. Go set yourself up in the middle of the of the wheat field. Do they have wheat? In the, yeah, whatever. Set yourself up in the middle of the field and start building And not only was Noah building and waiting, listen to what 2 Peter 2.5 says. It says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a herald of righteousness, apparently Noah was a preacher. So Noah and the three boys were Amish style out there on this ark. They were doing their thing. They were being faithful. They were waiting on God 120 years, and they were preaching the word. And we have to say, man, what sustained Noah. Noah was a righteous man, but what sustained him? Some of us feel like we're in the middle of that process, right? God's called us to do something. It's not 120 years worth probably, but it's something and it's a promise. It's, it's something he set before us. We're thinking, we're praying, we're hoping we don't see anything. I mean, did God visit physically Noah every day? I don't think so. How was Noah sustained? Listen to what Hebrews 11 says. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear or awe, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. See, what sustains Noah is the word of God. Because when we think back to the promise that God made, look at chapter 6, verse 18, very specifically. God says, told him all this is going to happen, but he says, But with you, Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. How many days, I wonder, when Noah was tearing, was laboring, was waiting, did he have to think back to verse 18, God made a covenant with me. He, he, he held on to that word. That word was precious. You can imagine he rehearsed every word that God told him all the time, to sustain him, so that he would persevere, so that he would not lose hope. In this class that we're doing on Wednesday night at Reboot, the one I'm doing on the Word, why we believe, receive, and trust the Bible, we're looking at the early church and the blood, sweat, and tears that were poured out for the preservation of this thing we call the Word of God, God supernaturally through the lives of his people, the church preserving his word. And what we realize is the church, early church, had anything but a casual relationship with the word of God. No, 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 no. It was precious. It was dear. It was something they would come together and read as a church. They would read personally. They would pour over it. They would set it to memory. Oftentimes, what I perceive is faithlessness always begins, the root is a casual relationship with the word of God. Church, what's, what's your posture to God in his word this season? Is your heart full of doubt? Is it full of fear? Is it full of anxiety? Is it full of distrust? God knows that. He says, that's why you have to become acquainted, reacquainted with me every single day every single moment, pouring over my word, setting it to memory, treasuring it in your heart so that it's at your fingertips when you need it. The word of God was at the fingertips of his servant Noah, and he persevered, and he was sustained. Third thing in this passage I want to point out, and then we're done. First of all, there is, of course, we see this this deconstruction, this decreation of the world. Then we see a devotion in the world. And finally, we're going to see a deliverance from the world. Now, this word ark that's used by um, Moses in this passage, you need to know something about this word. It's unique. It It appears one other time in the Hebrew Old Testament, only one other time. And guess what time that is? It's the time where Moses is describing the basket that his mom made to put him in on the river Nile. It's the same word, same Hebrew word, which tells us, I think, a couple of things. First of all, and and I'm learning all the time from God's word, just like you, I'm realizing for the first time this week, you know what? The ark really wasn't a boat. Think about it. There was nothing to steer the ark. There was no sail, there was no mast, there was no engine, there was no steering wheel, there, there wasn't an anchor. It literally, when you reconstruct it in, in computer imagery, you realize this is a giant box that's kind of floating on the ocean. And not just a box, but it's literally in the shape of a person. And many have, have, made, have commented that, in fact, it was shaped just like a coffin, in fact, And it probably felt like that climbing into that, wouldn't you imagine? It couldn't be steered, it couldn't be anchored, it couldn't be sailed. And it was just a reminder to to Noah and his family that this whole thing is in God's hands. This whole thing is completely and utterly, the preservation of this ark is completely and utterly dependent upon the very grace of God. Isn't it interesting that preserved for us are all these meticulous instructions about the dimensions of the ark? I we have to say, why is that? Couldn't God have just, like, said, hey, Noah, go for it. Do your thing. You know, little Elmer's glue there, little, little duct, of course, duct tape, little duct tape there. That ought to do it. No, 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 no. God knew that it was only the most intricately built and constructed box that will withstand the storm of the century. In fact, they've done all these computer-generated models. They've reconstructed the ark. They've shown it on these sorts of waves. And it shows, interestingly, scientifically, it shows a remarkable resiliency. It's virtually impossible to capsize. We can't even begin to imagine a, a a ship of this size was not built until thousands of years later, only a couple hundred years ago. No man knew how to construct an ark like this. This took the most intricate of designs and specifications. It's a reminder to us, it was a reminder to Noah that God takes particular care in constructing the grace that will save his people. See, his, his grace is detailed down to the cubit in this ark the most intricate detail it's a reminder that, that the length to which god will go to pour mercy on his and grace on his people knows no bounds that's why it says before the foundation of the world i predestined you to be adopted as my son or daughter in jesus christ And that while your life may feel random, it may look random from the outside. From the very beginning, I was writing. I have been writing my name upon your heart, and upon your life. And I've been weaving the events of your life together in such a way that you will see and know me. What arc are you in in your life this time? Or or better, better stated what storm are you in the midst of see when we are in christ and we're in the middle of that box float i mean and by the way this passage doesn't say anything about seasickness and you know it was gosh awful right you you know that okay the dramamine the patch put it on i mean they they were dying to get out of this thing some of you feel that way in your lives don't you with your job or your vocation or your family or your relationships or your money or maybe your body you just feel like i am being tossed to and fro and it's in those moments god wants to remind us i've designed my mercy and grace for you down to the most intimate of details trust me trust me i'm going to bring you to the end Theologians debate this, but I think it has some merit. The word that Moses used to describe the ark where where it tells Noah to put the pitch upon the ark to cover it in pitch, we don't know if that's some kind of glue or tar or some kind of waterproof sealant. But we do know this, though. We do know what the root word of that word for pitch is. And it's the same word that we find in Leviticus and the rest of the Pentateuch when the Bible talks about atonement. And what is atonement? Atonement is when the blood of the sacrifice would cover over the sins of the people. It would seal them, protect them from the just wrath that would pour out from God. And here, and I think Moses is just doing his thing, he's just dropping it in there, dropping it in there, leaking it in there. As a reminder, see, this was much more than physical salvation for Noah and his family. See, God was covering them. He was atoning for them. See, this wrath that was being poured out of the world, Mo- Noah and his family, they deserved it just as much as anyone else. But God's favor found them. God's grace found them. The question is, why, why is not why the whole world destroyed, but why is Noah saved? It's the atoning work of God for them to cover, to protect. And you should know by now where this is going. See, the flood is just a picture of the cross. That's why Jesus could, could look at this story And and say in Luke 24, that story was about me. See, the cross is where we found the justice and the mercy of God both intermingled. Justice poured out upon the earth that deserved it. Mercy and grace poured out on Noah who didn't deserve it. But now Jesus says the role on the cross is fundamentally different, and here's the way it is. Now I stand in the place of fallen mankind. And the, and the judgment that you deserve, that I deserve, Jesus says, I'm taking on myself. The judgment and justice and righteousness of God is being poured out on me. And now you are in that ark. And now by my grace, I'm saving you, atoning for you. My blood is covering you. See, this is is a lot more than storytelling, you know, nursery rhymes and felt boards and all those things. The, The ark, the flood, four oaks, it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of salvation. And I love this little verse that Moses tucks in at verse 16. I just love it. It says, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And I love this, and the Lord shut him in. I mean, you can imagine that, right? There was one door on the ark, they all get in and it's like, who's going to shut the door, right? Who's going to go outside? No, seriously, who's going to go outside and shut it and seal it? Because whoever does that's not going to make it. See, Jesus shuts the door. Jesus is the door. Do you know this Jesus? Do you trust this Jesus? Is this Jesus atoning for your sin? He does, he can, he will. Just turn to him. Place your faith in him. Turn to him in repentance. And Jesus says, I will pour my mercy and grace out upon you just as I've done my servant Noah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.